Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it will encourage you and help you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. Good morning, everybody. As Laura walks through the camera frame there, everybody got to see her new haircut. Let's give it up for Laura and her haircut. It's my first time getting to say hello and good morning today because Pastor Clay did a great job. First time ever hosting a service. Pastor Clay. Let's be honest here. How many of you find the Bible confusing sometimes? Uh, Cheering as well. Yeah, if the Lord was here, would you cheer and say that, you know, like, yes, yes. I don't know if you would. He is here, and he is listening to your cheering. Uh, Book of Hebrews, confusing? Yeah, I'll be honest. Most of the times when I've read through it, I'm like, my goodness, what all is going on in here? I hope that our journey through this summer, discovering how Christ is revealed through the book of Hebrews has helped you in some ways. How many of you find sometimes Christian songs that we sing in church are confusing? I have enjoyed this song that was introduced a few months ago called Better Word. Some of you have heard it a couple years ago. We introduced it to our church family a few months ago. We were singing it this morning. I want us just to look at some of the lyrics of that song, Better Word. Um, And perhaps as we've been going through the book of Hebrews, as clarity comes to us on the message of that book, it actually helps us understand some of what we sing. I've got to applaud you all, because some of you, I mean, you're lifelong Christians, and a lot of the pieces kind of come together, and it makes sense as you sing. But then there's others, and you're newer to faith in the last couple years, or you're still exploring and discovering the very beginnings of faith. And I mean, some of our lyrics must sound pretty sinister sometimes, right? Here's how we begin. Your blood is healing every wound. Your blood is making all things new. Your blood speaks a better word. So if you're new to this whole church thing, you're imagining blood that can talk. It sounds like a horror film. Carries on. Your blood speaks a better word. What's next? Your blood, the measure of my worth. Your blood more than I deserve. I didn't know I deserved even blood, but uh, it's even more than that. Your blood speaks a better word, a better word. It's singing out with life. So we're talking about the blood. Now the blood can sing. Okay, that's new and interesting to think about. Uh, It's shouting. Now I'm concerned. Now we have shouting blood. Thankfully, it's shouting at the lies, right? So that's good. It echoes through the night. Now it really sounds like a horror flick, right? We have blood echoing at nighttime when it's dark and scary. Uh, The precious blood of Christ speaks a better word, speaks a better word. Uh, Your blood, a robe of righteousness, your blood, my hope and my defense, your blood forever covers me. If you're new, that's a weird thought, isn't it? Forever covers me. It's singing out with life. Let's uh, skip this one. Skip echoes through the night. It's calling out my name. Can you imagine blood in the night that's echoing, and now, Mike, 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 you know? It's a bit interesting to think about. Us Christians are famous for mixed metaphors. Uh, We were singing about fire, which in the winter, we like it. In the summer, it's forest fires and it's dangerous. So then maybe we, we balance it by singing about Jesus being water too, or the spirit being water. So at least he puts out the bad part of the fire. There is confusion at times for us to address in our singing 
and in the word of God. Some things that we approach in God's words, uh, it's a little hard to understand up front, but that's why we give time on a regular basis on Sundays to open God's word and let it speak to us, to us, for us to approach it and ask history. What did this mean to the first people who heard it? who read it, how does it speak to us today? That song and these lyrics that we've just considered, I hope by the end of our time today, it makes a bit more sense to all of us. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, and as you're going there, I wanna just remind you, if if this is your first time with us, we've been journeying through uh, Christ revealed in the book of Hebrews. This is our last Sunday in it, but if you're new with us, I just wanna give you a little bit of the tools so you understand how we're approaching this book. There were some serious contextual issues for the people that this book was originally written to about 2,000 years ago. Anywhere from 30, 40 years after Christ was raised and ascended, There was an early church scattered around throughout uh, the ancient Roman Empire. And in certain parts of that Roman Empire, there was a special sort of exemption given to Jewish people. You see, in the Roman Empire, everybody was mandated to worship the emperor. And if you did a good job of worshiping the emperor, it helped things go well for all of Rome. And on top of that, wherever you lived, there were sort of local gods and local deities that had their own little temples and trinkets and idols, and you had to worship them as well. This was a big problem for the big Jewish populace that lived in Rome, because they wouldn't worship any other god except Yahweh. And the Roman leadership realized this is a big population. We could strike an agreement with them because if we mandate that they must worship our emperor and our local deities as well, they might revolt and then we've got a problem. We've got unrest in our empire. So certain leaders within the Jewish world and certain leaders within the Roman world struck a deal that the Jewish people wouldn't have to worship the emperor. They would pray for him. They could still only worship Yahweh. So it was a great provision for the Jewish people of the day. Now, Christianity was a sect that sprouted off of Judaism, and Jesus changed everything for the Jewish people who started following him. No longer were they known to be Jewish the way they were. They were now Christ followers or Christians. And so they didn't qualify for the exemption because they didn't identify as Jewish followers of Yahweh anymore. They were following Yahweh through Jesus Christ as Christians. And so they were at risk of losing things, being persecuted, having things looted and stolen from them. And so let me put it this way. It was a bit tempting for them to maybe revert backwards into some of their Jewish roots, distancing themselves from Jesus because it would sort of preserve and protect life for them. Have you ever felt that it might be convenient for you to distance yourself from Jesus because it protects and preserves something in your life? I think many of us understand what that's like at times. You know what it's like at school or at work on the job site where your faith makes you stand out in a different way. And what do we do in those moments when we're tempted to kind of distance ourselves from Jesus? This is why the author of Hebrews, he sees what's going on. There are brand new Christians who are facing real persecution, tempted to draw away from Jesus, go back to their old ways. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, hold on, hold on. If you're thinking you might go back, 
you've got to stop and compare Jesus because Jesus is the central figure of Christian faith. Not morality, not ethics, not do-goodism. It's Jesus. And if you forsake him, it changes everything. And so the author says, if Jesus is real, if what he's done actually matters, if he's still alive today, then he can withstand you comparing him against other things, right? So I think even in our day and age today, you in your work world, you at your school, you in your business, you in your neighborhood, there'll be times that you feel a push and a pull and it might be away from Jesus. In those moments, you and I need to really compare. If Jesus is actually who he says he is, if he's alive, if he's real, if his message is truth, then it can withstand comparison. I mean, compare Jesus against the philosophies of our day, against the religions of our world. Compare Jesus. The author invites us to compare Jesus. The book of Hebrews is best summarized in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. We've referenced it several times, and now for the last time, I want you to see it one more time. These three verses share the thrust of the whole book itself. It says this, Let us throw off anything and everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Can you say that with me? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Do you see what the author is doing here? He's saying, I know that you know what it's like for you to feel pushed and pulled and distanced, maybe tempted to move away from God. But look at Jesus, our example, who held on to faith and trust purely, even when pushed to the point of death. It says, he embraced the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful people so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. The author of Hebrews, through his writing or her writing, drops five important warnings to the listeners and the readers today. And I want to share them one last time with you right now. Five warnings. First one is this, a warning against drifting away. I think we have a chart for you to see on the screen. A warning against drifting away. Second warning is allowing your heart to harden. Third warning is spiritual indifference. Fourth, deliberate sin. Fifth, and lastly, in chapter 12, is this the ultimate refusing of Jesus. Now, if you followed Jesus for a few years, you've probably had the unfortunate experience of seeing other people from time to time have their faith completely shipwrecked. Here's what happens. Probably none of those people set out on purpose to shipwreck their faith. How did that happen? How did they end up in a place where they were ultimately now refusing Jesus? How does that happen? Go all the way back to number one. At some point, things just got slightly off course, slightly, and they began drifting. First week of the series, I told a story of how uh, Laura and I were, were in Germany and 
we were faced at an intersection with three roads that appeared to kind of go in the same direction. So we selected the one that we thought was right, went walking down it, backpacking for about an hour, and we realized we're way off track now. It started out very close together, but the roads gradually got further and further apart. My wife is the carpenter in our household, not me. She's got all the tools and things, so I learned through her that things need to be squared. And if things are off by even a 16th or a 32nd, eventually they go way off, right? Uh, how many people remember or know of the granola bar called Nature Valley? Yeah, there's a little bit of mixed response there. If you read up on Nature Valley, uh, they claim to be the first ever granola bar. Almost 50 years of history. Next year they celebrate 50 years of being a granola bar and introducing the world to granola bars. Now, I haven't done a ton of research on them, but when I think of their name and their branding and the original granola bar, I think of health. I don't know about you, but I think, okay, here's some people that thought, we need to offer something healthy, right? And so the first one looked like this. How many of you have had a Nature Valley before? Let's see your hands. Yeah, lots of you have. And they do that classically, right? They fall apart and they break. And they look like this. It was pretty exciting, right? Not really. I mean, they did pretty well because there wasn't much of a granola bar market, but I think they started out with this vision of providing something healthy for people to eat. Does that seem right? Now, have you been down the granola bar aisle recently? Have you seen what else Nature Valley is doing these days? Now, for decades of their history, they were making this. Okay, I was camping a bit this week, and I saw that they had these for sale. Crispy, creamy wafers. Let me just show you this one. Have you had this one? Anybody had the... I hope there's no peanut allergies in here because the smell's coming at you. Anybody had this one yet? I mean, it's a wafer with a lot of whipped peanut butter inside. And to make sure it's healthy, there's a little bit of, like, rolled oats on the top, right? You check the calories on this thing, 200 calories. You might as well have a chunky Kit Kat bar. This is a cookie. This is a cookie. It's no longer a healthy granola bar. You know what else I found? Because parents want their kids to have healthy snacks, right? So Nature Valley offers this lunchbox s'mores. <laughs> s'mores. So there's going to be chocolate involved, and there's going to be uh, marshmallows. Have you noticed how they brand it on the boxes? How did they show the picture of it? Like this, right? With the chocolate barely peeking underneath. So the parent's like, oh, it's still healthy. Well, let me show you what it really is. They are selling chocolate bars and cookies now. And you look at the calories on these things and compare them with what you could get in the chocolate bar aisle. And you might as well be having a cookie or a chocolate bar, right? How did that happen to Nature Valley? Their vision was, it seems, presumably, health. And they're flogging cookies and chocolate bars now. Under the guise of health, I think, now if, I did a bit of research on Nature Valley just because I was curious about it. And of course, there is some controversy a few years ago. They had to change some of their language because they could no longer guarantee that it was 100% this and that because they found some traces of pesticide in their materials, etc., etc., etc. You can always find controversy online if you want to, right? Just Google anything. The point is... At some point, they had a clear direction. When Nature Valley was founded nearly 50 years ago, 
I can almost guarantee you that nobody sitting around that family table or boardroom table was saying, one day we're selling cookies and chocolate bars, right? That's equivalent to refusing Jesus. It was the exact opposite of what they intended to do up front was to have something healthy for people to eat. And now they're selling cookies, chocolate bars, and the original healthy things still just so that they can ease their own conscience and us who buy them for our kids. There was a drifting point. At some point in their journey, they realized that we could make a small shift in this direction. 50 years later, a small shift becomes quite a different thing, doesn't it? The same kind of thing can happen in our faith. I've said it before this way, but it's worth saying again. Who are your first phone call friends? Like when something bad happens in your life or something great happens, who are the first people you want to phone or text? Those people need to be close followers of Christ who help you follow him well too. One of the ways we can end up drifting in our faith is by including people who see life and faith very different from us in that first phone call category. Now, if you're around our church family lots, you're gonna hear me and our team speak often about befriending people who are far from Jesus. Please, please, please do that. But reserve the first phone call circle for those who will encourage your faith. It's vastly important because when we don't, all of a sudden there's a slight course direction, which at the beginning doesn't look to alter things all that much. But fast forward several years and you might be in a different situation. Today, as we look at a passage towards the end of Hebrews chapter 12, we're coming at the last appearance of something. If you've been with us through this journey in the book, the word better, can everybody say better? better. The word better appears 15 times in the book of Hebrews. Today we're going to look at the last occurrence of the word better, and we're going to actually discover that it's setting up the final warning, which is the warning against refusing Jesus. So turn with me now, flip over to chapter 12, verse 20, or verse 18. We're going to start there. Remember how we said sometimes scripture is confusing? We're going to go into a bit of a confusing passage, but I hope that by the end of our time together, you're like, okay, I feel like I understand the big heart behind that a little better, what's being said through this. So follow with me, read along in your own Bibles. It says this, beginning in verse 18, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. Okay, let's be honest, this is a complex kind of confusing passage. Let's carry on. Verse 22, so you have not come to what we've just read, but listen to verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to a thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of the righteous people made perfect, to Jesus, to Jesus. And we're going to come back to verse 24 in just a moment. What's going on in these verses that we're looking at here? Essentially, the writer is drawing our attention to the issue of approachability. The issue of approachability. And it's saying, listen, there used to be a way in which God was approached 
in one particular way, and it made things feel very unapproachable. But everything has changed now because of Jesus. Suddenly, there's this sense of approachability towards God, and it cannot be ignored. Don't refuse Jesus. He's changed everything. I want to help break down a little bit of what we've read right now. We have a little bit of a chart for you to see on the screen right now. So there's two segments, verse 18 through 21, and then the second segment is 22 through 24. What's going on in these two segments? The first segment says, essentially, you have not come to Mount Sinai. It doesn't mention Mount Sinai, but we understand from this portion of Scripture, he's referring, the author's referring back to Israel's history, Israel's story. When they came to God's mountain in the Exodus story, when they were set free from Egypt, they came to a mountain called Sinai where God met with his people, and that was the epicenter of the Old Covenant. Sinai was the epicenter of the Old Covenant. So everything in these first verses, 18 through 21, is drawing our attention backward to that time. At verse 22, there's a pivot. You, you have not come to Sinai, you've come to Zion. What's Mount Zion? It's the epicenter of the New Covenant. It's in, in and around Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified. And rose again. Now, you have, if you've been around church and churchianity for a while, you've figured out that the number seven seems to show up quite often. The number seven was massively important to Jewish uh, people historically and continues to be. And it can be easy to read through a text like the one we're handling today and just sort of miss something. And I've got to get, give credit to a commentator that I spent some time reading earlier this week that identified. The author drops two sevens in this passage on purpose for us. The first is a sevenfold description of unapproachability associated with Sinai and the old way of relating with God. The second seven is a sevenfold description of approachability because of Jesus. So let's look at the Sinai seven first. If you recall what we read, there's this description of a mountain, so it's an earthly kind of place. Secondly, it's burning with fire. There's darkness, there's gloom, there's storm. Nothing about this sounds very approachable, right? It's giving us this impression that, wait, I don't know if I want to come close. There's blasting trumpets. And then it ends with this, there's terrifying words. And if you read in the book of Exodus, you actually find that at Mount Sinai, God's people are afraid of what they're hearing. They're terrified by things connected within the Old Covenant. And so the author of Hebrews is contrasting that old way of seeing things done with something new that's happened because of Jesus. You have not, no longer have you come through Mount Sinai. You have come to Mount Zion. To Mount Zion. And here's the sevenfold descriptions of approachability when you come to God through Jesus. Number one, it's a heavenly kind of place. Two, there's joyful angels. Three, there's the church. Four, there's God making things right. We read in the text that it says God is the judge. How many of you feel kind of like bad vibes when you hear the word judge? Be honest. That's it? So you like being judged? You like it when other people judge you? Most people feel bad vibes with the word judge. Most of us don't go around saying, I love judging people. I have the gift of judging, right? We usually use it as a different way of describing somebody who's maybe not as awesome. They seem pretty judgy, right? 
I need to let you know on something. When you encounter in scripture that God is being referred to as a judge, that's good news. That's good news. Because our world, ever since it was undone by sin, has longed for things to be made right. A judge's job is to bring about justice, to make things right. And so this passage is celebrating the fact that God is judge. The most just, the most right, the most merciful one has now ruled on anything and everything and is making things right. So when you approach God through Jesus, we see the good news that's in God being a judge. There's transformed people and there's Jesus. Now, the seventh thing, I want to read verse 24 to you now. It says, you have come to Mount Zion, and then you go down to verse 24. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The author has tucked two meanings together here. One, he's contrasting the better word, Jesus, the better word, versus the terrifying words that were experienced earlier. Instead of wanting to step away from the misunderstanding of God as we see in Exodus, terrifying words, I want to go kind of hide away, maybe we could have a priest between us. Now there are better words. Wonderful news for us. Secondly, there's a contrast between the blood of Jesus and the blood of Abel. For those that are maybe newer to some of our scriptural story, the blood of Abel, what does that mean? If you go back into the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, after the fall of mankind, we find the first death in humanity. And it's a murder. One man named Cain, who's a child of Adam and Eve, kills his brother named Abel. There's jealousy. There's hard feelings. There's no resolve in the relationship, and it turns into the first death. And it's terrifying for the world and for that moment and that history. And so God comes and speaks to Cain, and he says, where's your brother? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? Maybe you've heard a line like that before. And then there's this line in there that Abel's blood is crying out from the ground. We find this in Genesis. Abel's blood is crying out from the ground. What does that mean? What does that mean? Why Abel? Alexis, you can go to the next slide, which just helps everybody. I know there's some people who love charts and stuff. I see people trying to take pictures. And so if you wanted the seventh one, you take a picture now. Now we're going to the next slide after this one. Abel's blood cries out for justice and retribution. He was murdered unjustly. And so his blood was crying from the earth for justice and retribution. Compare that against the blood of Jesus. His message, his blood doesn't speak for, uh, you know, revenge of some kind. Jesus' blood speaks for forgiveness and healing. And that's good news for you and I. Jesus' blood speaks of forgiveness and healing. I want you to see two scriptures right now. In Ephesians Chapter 1, verse 7, it says, In him we have the redemption. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. How many of you might say, you know what? At the end of the day, I don't even totally understand how in the world I could be forgiven, but I'm so grateful that I am. Let me see your hands. That's me, that's me, that's me. Absolutely. Forgiveness is a miracle. None of us could ever deserve it. 
and by the blood of Christ, forgiveness is spoken to you and I. First Peter 2.24, which is quoting from Isaiah 53, it says, by his stripes, so the wounds, when Jesus was whipped on his back, which produced blood, by his stripes, you are healed. Friends, Jesus is the better word. And Jesus speaks the better word. You see, until Jesus, we lived in a world that was crying out for justice and retribution. Justice and retribution. Justice and retribution. And along comes Jesus. Gives his life. Sheds his blood. And it speaks a better word to our world. A word of forgiveness. A word of healing. That's why it's a better word. That's why we sing about it being a better word. I think in John chapter 8, when a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery was brought before Jesus by awful religious leaders trying to trap her and trap him and pin Jesus against the very laws of God, quoting those laws against Jesus, I think that woman discovered that Jesus is the better word and Jesus says the better words because when he spoke, something happened in her history that was different. She deserved death just like you and I do because of our wrongs, right? And what did he say? Neither do I condemn you. I had the privilege of fishing a little bit this week. And my first catch, I released back into the waters. And I, was, I had one of my sons with me on the trip. And I just thought afterwards, I'm like, it's a wild thing to have the power of life and death in your hands. That fish did not understand what was going on, right? But I had the power to take its life and instead... It was released into some ongoing life. And this woman caught in adultery came into the hands of God the judge, the one who could actually use the full force of the law against her and finish her. And instead, he speaks different words to her. She knows she's guilty. She knows she deserves death. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Friends, those are better words. If you're a human who knows what it's like to experience brokenness, make real mistakes, have real regrets in this life, welcome to humanity, welcome to church. There are no greater hands to fall into than the hands of the living God who has the power of life and death and instead of crushing us at the cross, took the crushing himself. The full force of the worst that humanity and religion and power and politics could all do. He took it upon himself at the cross so that instead of delivering death to you, he could deliver words of life. Neither do I condemn you. I think of the man in Matthew chapter 8. He was a leper. In that time in history, 2,000 years ago, skin conditions were highly misunderstood. They were all assumed to be contagious. So if you had leprosy, if you had a bad skin condition, if nerves were not functioning, you were sent outside of the city. And you had to leave, leave the city, live in a leper colony. And if you ever came close to somebody who didn't have leprosy, you had to shout out, unclean, unclean, 
unclean because you were ceremonially unclean and you had to give fair warning to anybody else that they might catch whatever you have and then they could become ceremonially unclean too. Can you imagine having to declare that wherever you go? You're limited to a little space and if somebody happens to come by to graciously and mercifully bring some food, you have to declare right away, unclean, 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 so that they give you space and you don't transmit your uncleanness upon them. If you happen to wander into town or through town, everybody's going to be nervous around you. Why? Because you're always saying, unclean, unclean, unclean. Those are your words that the law demanded you speak. Along comes Jesus to a leper who says, if you're willing, you could make me clean. And Jesus, every time he meets a leper, I'm just fascinated. He treats him with dignity, care, compassion, respect, and he touches them. No one touched a leper. No one touched a leper. You think of lepers. They had lived for decades without feeling other human contact. And this leper in Matthew chapter 8 and in other experiences you see in the gospel. Whose touch do they feel first? God himself. You see, in the old covenant, leprosy could make you unclean. But in the new covenant, the power of Christ, you can make the leper clean. And so Jesus had probably heard this leper approaching him. Want, think about that leper. Here's Jesus. He's known to do works of healing and miracle. This might be my opportunity. I want to go towards him. But if I go towards him, I have to keep confessing what's true about me to warn other people. Unclean, 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 unclean. I'm sure people scattered and sort of parted the ways. And does Jesus run off too because God's too clean and doesn't want to get near dirty, broken people? No. He goes towards, he listens, he touches, and then he delivers the better word. You see, God would have had every right to affirm over this man the true by law, you're unclean. But he's a greater high priest. So he doesn't say unclean. He says, be clean. Two words, be clean. And he's healed. Jesus is the better word, friends. He speaks the better word. This past week, I was called to go to our hospital in town because a man in our community here is dying. Not part of our church, just in the local community. And it's a humbling, wild experience to be close to somebody who's quite aware that they're, they're facing death's door. The man was far too young, just in his 60s, facing a horrid illness. He had been unresponsive for quite a while. He had perked up a little bit, and so I managed to get a few grunts out of him. He had a family member nearby, and it was easy to tell this man had lived, lived a very, very hard life. No sense of faith. It was quite clear from the family members, but they still wanted a pastor to come by. So I had the honor of just saying, I won't use his name, doesn't matter what you've done in this lifetime. Doesn't matter your worst, worst. Forgiveness is available to you. When you look to Jesus, there's real hope. None of us ever deserve it. None of us are ever good enough. But in a moment like this, when you're facing death, what can you lose by reaching out towards a God who offers forgiveness? Forgiveness is a miracle. I think it's the miracle that changes the world. 
One of the biggest things the Apostle Paul references over and over again is relational frictions in churches. And what's the remedy? Forgiveness. And why is forgiveness so wild? Because nobody ever deserves it, right? Think about the times you've been forgiven. Did you actually deserve it? Sometimes we, we con ourselves into believing we did by we did enough good things since, right? But you can never do enough good things. There's no scale that measures that. It just sort of appeases your own sense of conscience, perhaps. Forgiveness is a miracle every time. And when you come to face-to-face with the gravity of your own sinfulness and then the gravity of God's grace that says, I'll forgive you. It's a gift. You don't have to earn this or work for it. I'll just give it to you. You could receive it. That's a miracle. And it actually gives us a little more empowerment to give that gift of forgiveness to others who don't deserve it too. I have family members who divorced. For seven years they were apart, got into other relationships, and there was all kinds of emotional stuff that just had to be worked through in both of their situations. It looked like they were going in different directions, gonna marry other people, and then one family member who was the primary cause of the marriage breakup reached out to the other and just said, could we just have a coffee? It was about, he was, they were going to be in town, see the kids kind of thing. And sat down over coffee and just said, I, I've done a lot of thinking. I've come face to face with some things and I'd have no expectation, but I just want you to know I take full responsibility for the failure of our marriage. I'm sorry. I don't know if you could ever forgive me but I apologize. Leaves. Time passes, and they're remarried. Still married to this day. It's a miracle, and I wish it could be everybody's story. It doesn't always work out that way, but to me it illustrates forgiveness is a miracle every time. Forgiveness is a miracle every time. You and I don't deserve it from God. We probably don't deserve it with each other, but it's what heals relationships. Forgiveness. So, Jesus' blood is a better word that speaks forgiveness to souls and to relationships. Jesus' blood speaks a better word. It speaks a better word about wholeness and renewal and things being healed. I was reflecting earlier this week. Some of you know that I had the privilege of serving as an associate pastor at this church in 2008 through 2011. And I just remembered a few times that God worked in healing miracles here. I see Sandra McPhee back there. And I remember one time she received prayer for a problem in her hip. And then the next weeks, you can ask her the story, but there was a change. And she came and um, Sandra McPhee is a very young, spry person, as you can all see, and lovely, sweet person. She looked up at me. She said, Pastor Mike, when we prayed last week, something changed. She said, I can run again. (laughs) And her hip was healed. We were running an alpha course here 12 years ago or so, and one of the nights they talk about healing, and there was a woman named Jenny. Some of you might remember who she was. She was exploring some things of faith, and that subject came up. She thought, hmm, interesting. And so around the table, they prayed for healing. She had back problems. Nothing happened. And I think for a lot of us, we know what it's like. Sometimes we pray and like, nothing happens. What do we do with that? Not sure. She says, oh, well, thank you, God. And off she goes. Before she's going to leave, she goes into the washroom downstairs to use the washroom before driving home. 
and I'm at the back of the room. She comes out of the washroom several minutes later, and she's got tears streaming down her face. She says, Pastor Mike, Pastor Mike, I've just been in the washroom. Now, when people come out of the washroom with tears coming, I don't know, and it's a woman, so I'm thinking, I'm going to find somebody else for you to talk to. And she grabs hold of me, Pastor Mike, I received prayer over there for my back and nothing happened and I was going to leave but I needed to use the restroom and I sat down and I thought, okay, I'm really going to find somebody right now. Don't, no, no, no more, no more. And she said, as I was sitting there, I thought, I think this church has its plumbing wrong. They must have hot water going into the tank behind me here. And she reached behind her and felt the tank on the toilet and it was cold, of course. She said, why is it cold? Because my back is so hot right now. And she thought, oh, God's healing me here, right now. And she came out, tears streaming, and she said, my back pain's all gone. So today we are going to pray for healing. And some may experience something in the moment. And if you don't, try going to the washroom. <laughs> no, the point in that, I think, is if something doesn't happen right away, Stay in tune. God may be at work over time. I remember being at a camp a bunch of years ago. And just in a surprising, wonderful way that only Jesus can, several teenagers started getting healed in this service. Real miracles done by God. No manufacturing, no people, no trickery, whatever kind of stuff. It was just real, real neat stuff. There was all kinds of stuff that were healed in that service, knee problems, shoulders, elbows. And there's several favorite memories I have from that time. One that stands out as the most favorite to me is this, this girl came up with her friends. Her friends kind of forced her up at the end of the service. And she had been wearing, it was a, it was a youth camp, summer camp. It was hot weather. The whole week she had been wearing long sleeve sweaters. You know, it was one of those, like, why is that person, are they not very hot? What's going on here? And she came forward with the friends, and the friends said, you've got to see this, you've got to see this. Our friend here, she's been wearing sleeves the whole week because for so many years of her life, just because of self-hatred and stuff, she's been cutting herself. And she's got purple bumpy scars up and down her arm, and she's embarrassed, and so she covers it up all the time. And they said, but then Jesus started healing people. Look at this. And they rolled up her sleeves. And the purple was gone. And the bumps were gone. Just sort of faint, faint scars left behind. And I look at that story and I think, man, what does that tell me about what God's heart is like? I know that there was a physical healing that was happening for her. But how many of you think there was something in her soul that was being, in her emotional world, that was being healed by God too? Last story and then we're going to pray. For uh, several years ago, I, I journaled sort of a bucket list of things I want to see healed in my lifetime. And um, number two on the list, I don't know why, was colorblindness. And because um, I just think the world's so beautiful and I love art and I love, you know, people, people should have the opportunity to see color, if, you know, and why not pray for it just in case. And I was at another camp and... Uh, Again, it was all, all credit to Jesus. Just 
while I was preaching, all of a sudden I thought, we just need to pray really quick right now in case something could happen. I'll fast forward the story. This boy, 12 years old, he keeps putting up his hand. He says, my feet keep feeling better. My feet keep feeling better. So I said to him during the message, what's going on with your feet? He says, I have plantar fasciitis. I have a hard time running around, but they keep feeling better and better. I said, okay, after the service, come tell me about your feet. And so the service wrapped up, you know, a little later on. I was preaching, so of course it was like three hours later. Um, <laughs> And I found him in the crowd in a prayer time. And I said, what's going on with your feet? He says, all the pain's gone. I went outside and ran again. It's, it feels so good. And he had a friend with him, two 12-year-olds. And I just said, I want to just encourage you guys. What God's done in you, he can do through you. When you go back to school, you're going to know other people that have problems. You have the ability to pray for them and see God do great things, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, okay, that's awesome. And they start listing a few friends who've got issues and stuff. And then this kid says, plus, I'm colorblind. And right away, I thought, oh, I said, do you think we should pray about that? And then I felt nervous right away. I'm like, oh man, that's, sometimes it's easier to pray for like a sore elbow or something. And, but colorblindness, that's real stuff. You know, it's either it's still colorblind or you're not kind of thing. And anyways, I opened my mouth and he's like, yeah, yeah, okay. So now I'm like, how do we do this? You know, Jesus would always spit whenever it came to eye miracles. <laughs> And so I thought, I'm, I'm going to leave that to the divine one to do that. Uh, and so I really didn't know what else to do. I just said, I think I should lay hands on you. I'm not going to touch your eyeballs, though, so maybe close your eyes. And so he did, and I just put my thumbs in there. And I prayed like a 30-second prayer. It's not about me or what I said. It was about the Lord. And then I, I just said, amen. And I said, okay, uh, what do you see? <laughs> and he's sort of blinking and looking around. And he says... I see color, and I'm the man of faith, right? So I'm like, you do? <laughs> he says, I, I see color. I see color. I said, what color is my shirt? And I was wearing a red and white striped shirt. He said, that's red and white. I said, what color is your friend's shirt? He says, that's a blue and green shirt, right? And he's like, I mean, he's, he's learning colors, it appears, in the moment. I'm like, are you serious? Whoa. And so somebody said, get his mom, get his mom. So somebody runs and grabs his mom. She comes over and he's like, mom, I see color. I see color. You're wearing pink. And they embrace and there's tears. I want to show you a picture. This is Morgan being hugged by his mom. Now here, I want to tell you something. I learned afterwards that at 12 years old, Morgan's lifelong dream was to fly a plane. But when you're colorblind, you're never allowed to be a pilot. After his eyesight changed, he was so convinced that he could see color now. His mom took him, I was up in the Yukon, within weeks his mom took him back down to a specialist in Vancouver to get tested again. Fast forward to a few years ago, I want to show you this picture. This is Morgan flying. He got in touch with me a few years ago, I want to show you the next picture. And he said, I have a friend who works in an eye medical office, we pulled up the report that I have full color sight. And now he lives in Campbell River and works for Harbor Air. Because Jesus speaks a better word. Let's stand together. It's always risky when we pray for like healing of relationships and healing of bodies, right? Because sometimes things don't always go as we anticipate. And we're like, oh, why didn't that work out? But I've learned it's not God's fault. 
It's not the person who's praying. It's not their fault. And it's not the person who received prayer. It's not their fault either. We just embrace the mystery with resilient trust. But we can't pass up on an opportunity, I think, to pray today and to release the better word of Jesus into this room touching people's lives, bodies today. So I'm, I'm still a little unsure of how we're going to do this. Um, there's been, why don't you guys just make yourselves available up here? Dave and Anne, I don't know if you'd be willing to just make yourselves available up front here. If, if you're comfortable with it, you could come too. Just come stand along the front, you guys. Um, I think we're going to do a general kind of prayer in the room. And then for follow-up, there's some other people here that they would love to just have ongoing prayer with you for whatever it may be. There might be a soul issue, a relational issue, or a physical issue. We even sung earlier about how Jesus has authority over anxiety and depression, mental illness. Jesus can heal in those ways too. How many of you have experienced the forgiveness of God in your own life? I'm going to just ask for... How many of you have felt the, forgive, uh, the miracle of forgiveness in a relationship before? Let's put up your hands. Yes. How many of you have experienced a physical healing in your own body before? Can we just see your hands? It's worth us praying again. It's worth us praying again. Here's what I'm going to just ask you to do. If you would just feel comfortable with me right now, you could sort of hold out your hands in a receiving posture. If some of you have a, a need for healing in your world. It could be mental, emotional, or physical. Would you just slip up your hand? Nobody else is looking around. We're just going to, I just want, yeah, so we're just acknowledging it. Lord, thank you that you see these hands. You see these hands, yeah. Okay, you can slip it back down right now. You see, I think if Jesus was here, and he is, (laughs) I think he would just say, be healed. So I declare over you the better word of Jesus, which is be healed. I'm just asking, if you slipped up your hand earlier, would you just begin thanking God right now? We don't know what he's doing or how he's doing it right now, but let's just thank him because he is good and he is here. Some of you might feel something happening. Some of you may not feel anything happening, and that's okay. He works through feelings and he works through non-feelings too. Let's just take 30 seconds of thanksgiving right now. Let's all do it. Just thanks, God. Thanks that you're at work in this room. Thanks that you care for bodies. You care for people. You care for people. You care for people. Oh, you care for people. It was always your compassion that moved you, and you care for these people. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to try something. I always find this risky, but it's worth us giving it a shot. Just as we remain in this sort of mode of prayer, if, if what you received prayer for right now is just something that you're able to test to see if it's feeling any better, like I get if it's a heart condition, you really can't test that right now, or if it requires uh, some privacy or the, a, doc, a doctor's help, I get that, that you can't test that right now. But for some of you, it might be like an ankle or a wrist that you could just try moving around to see if there's anything that's changed or improved. Could you just test to see? And we're not trying to hype anything up here. I'm not asking anybody to pretend it's better. But if anybody feels a little bit of improvement or a lot of improvement, would you just slip up your hand? If you feel a little bit of improvement or a lot of improvement, okay, we got one, two, three, four. Uh, maybe one upstairs too. So now you know what we do is we just say thanks. Do you know that one time Jesus had to pray for somebody twice for the healing? So we'll just pray again. 
Thank you, God, for what's beginning in this room. It seems that you're at work healing some people in this room right now. We just welcome you to continue that. There might be some people online right now who are participating right now, and you're touching them at home or wherever they are right now. And so we declare over these people and circumstances and situations, be healed. Jesus says so. Jesus says so. Let's just thank God for 10 seconds again. Thanks that you're at work here, God. Thank you, God. Thanks, God. And then if you're able to just test to see if anything feels any different or any better, just test it gently right now if you can. Don't put yourself in danger. Just test it gently. Is anybody feeling any more improvement or anything different? Just wave at us a little bit just so I can see. Anybody? Yeah, one. Okay. Anybody else feeling something improving or changing? Hand up there, don't know. Okay, great, great, great. Thanks, Jesus. Thanks, Jesus. Father, what I'm praying now is what you're starting in our bodies, in our minds, in our souls, in our spirits would go home with us today. Would go home with us today. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Father, I'm praying for relationships to be mended for the miracle of forgiveness, the better word to work itself out in relationships. It requires real courage for that to happen. It requires your help and we need it, God. So would you release it now in your strong name, in your strong name. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Amen, amen, amen. Some of you, and I need to be very clear, some of you need follow-up prayer. Somebody to just be with you and you say what's going on and ask for prayer, especially maybe if there's an emotional thing or a relational thing. If you want ongoing prayer for physical healing, I know all of these people up front would love to pray for you. So today I'm asking, don't just sort of think, yeah, I could use that, but I'm not going to. Come receive prayer. We would love to pray with you. I'm going to release you now. I'm going to just pray a blessing and then send you on your way. And then this room is reserved for prayer ministry, okay? Father, thank you so much for what you're doing. Jesus, you are the better word. You are the better word. Fill our hearts and our lives with a trust in you, we pray. Send us now in your power. In Jesus' name, we pray this and everybody said, amen. Thanks again for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged you as you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more.